Hello, you are listening to a pre-released, pre-recorded episode of Girls Gone Canon, The Collectors. This is a story by Philip Pullman that we're talking about today, and it has been physically released. Physically released as a book. It was prior only an audiobook and an ebook. So we're so excited to be here to bring you this episode. Please note again, this was pre-recorded. It is being released thanks to Girls Gone Canon patrons. Yeah, we hope you enjoy, and I think there's some really great discussion in here, and we are looking forward to whenever Season 3 of His Dark Materials comes out. And if you want to hear more about our thoughts on His Dark Materials, please be sure to check out our episodes um, over at podbean.com slash girlsgonecanon, where we have finished covering all three of the His Dark Materials main books, as well as the first of... The Books of Dust, La Belle Sauvage. Yeah, we'll be back hopefully next year or later covering The Secret Commonwealth, but we will be definitely back, I think in December, it looks like, when His Dark Materials Series 3 launches. Until then, you can also get access to all of our back catalog of Patreon special episodes if you're in the Stranger tier, the $5 tier and up at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon including some special His Dark Materials episodes, most of the novellas. Now that I say it out loud, like all of the novellas. So if this is not the only novella by Pullman that you've read so far and you want to check them out, head on over. Thanks again, and we will be back next week with our next brand start chapter for A Song of Ice and Fire. Hello everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Kitten, Patreon episode 35, The Collectors, a His Dark Materials story, kind of. Kind of. Kind of. If you're here, you know us. Probably. It's Chloe. Yeah, it, it's Eliana. I, I'm sorry, I might I might, I might, not be Eliana. There have some, been some things happening this week in my life that I might not be. Well. I'm excited to talk about The Collectors tonight not Eliana's name, and <laughs> someday I'm going to hear about it. I'm excited to talk about The Collectors because it is a total ghost story, a total The Christmas Story kind of ghost story, as we'll talk about. And listen, back in 2020, Pullman guested on this webinar for Blackwells of Oxford. Yes, back a year ago in Jesus 2020, Christ. when I, Chloe, Signed Eliana up for webinars against her will, but she showed up anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I would just get like random emails and I'd be like, you're registered <laughs> for this webinar. I was like, oh, worms. <laughs> it was good. It was. It was, okay. it, it was actually quite affordable, I think. Not that I paid for it. My uh, wonderful artistic patron <laughs> just signed this up and paid for it, but. It was honestly, like, there were always deals for two, mm. so the other thought I had was, like, if you couldn't use it, I could always give the invitation to someone else. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. to a patron or a friend over at Discord on the Girls Gone Canon Discord, you know. Like, if you were unavailable, that was my goal. I can always make myself available. I can, I can bullshit my way available. Anyways, I- I was uh, available. I don't know. It was a- Yeah, you were available <laughs> as fuck. But- I'm not interesting. I don't- I'm not important. <laughs> Uh, you know, 
I'm not either at work, but I sure make myself. I sure make myself. I don't know. It was a it was a really good webinar. We heard a lot of really fun stuff, but related to the collectors, someone in the crowd, I don't know her disclaimer, but she sounded so confident. Honestly, really full of self-esteem, clever. Uh, she asked a really important question. I don't know what she asked, but I think it was something to do about the novellas. She was like specifically asking something about the collectors. I digress. Philip Pullman started to talk about the collectors. Honestly, this fact felt a lot more important until I found out this fact was already publicly available in like one place. And it wasn't a popular fact, but it was on the internet back in 2016 or some crap. So I don't know. I don't know. But I digress. Philip Pullman was really excited about this question and said he was putting out a physical copy in 2021 or 2022 mm. of The Collectors because it was only pre-released as an audiobook, as we're going to talk about, and an ebook. So no physical copy is available of this story. If you're buying it physically somewhere, must be new to me and I might be wrong. I doubt it, though. He probably wants to ride some of the pre-press, I'm guessing, for season three of his Dark Materials, series three, the wonderful adaptation at HBO BBC. That's my guess. Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know if that's something that he he's super interested in. You know, there are people who are, you know, interested in uh, doing that screenwriting, but obviously he's there helping to produce it and and giving input on the direction and the elements yeah and from what you and i know from other webinars we attended last year Listen, Chloe. <clears throat> i was i was there i was there to be other pretty. webinars i made you come with me <laughs> yeah, you and you were you were for arm candy worth, from afar gorgeous, darling <laughs> definitely some different world arm yes. candy no spoilers, but... <laughs> they, I assume they've read the story if they're here listening to this episode, but yes. Yeah, I would hope so. But The Collectors is coming out physically. It was written originally for audiobook. It's going to have some minor changes, he said, but nothing plot-wise, like nothing that's really going to affect the overarching plot. And also, it's available now. If you don't want to wait for a physical copy, it is available as an ebook for like less than a dollar right now. Mm-hmm. So like, go get it. Yeah. And yeah, and the audiobook, and we're about to talk about this. I'm not a big audiobook person. It, it's nothing against them. I'm sure they're fine. I just, I don't know. I, I need a lot of stimulus at once. So I, I'm unfortunately, I don't know if I can sit still for an audiobook or actually comprehend is the bigger problem. I don't comprehend. Sam. I need to like sit my ass down, bolt my arms down, read a book, read an ebook. But I didn't listen to the audiobook, and I need to because I know it's only a half hour from what a couple of our friends, like our friend the Hedge Knight Warren, has mentioned. I think it's only a half an hour, him and Pete mentioned. So I got to sit down. I got to do it. But it was written for audiobook. And I don't know, more importantly is the influence Kate Bush had over this, right? So Kate Bush and Philip Pullman are buddies, absolute friends. And Kate Bush once told him about a painting she had, two paintings, actually, and throughout their lives, they found themselves in the same room, same collection, sold to the same people over and over, moving, moving, and somehow kept ending up together. And with her permission, he decided to create a story of it. So 
the actual physical copy of the book is probably going to be dedicated to Kate Bush, I would guess. And I think he mentioned it would be during this Blackwell's interview. And he actually intended the collectors to be a classic ghost story, which it does come off with that, right? Very ghost story, very Christmas story, written in the style of a Christmas ghost story. But Audible persuaded him to link in Lyra's world. They were like, hey, uh, you want to use your, your fame? Yeah. For some sales for this motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I get it. And, and it was good, though. I mean, that that he made it work. However, I do think we're going to continually reference that, that this, it's hard. It's like, what came first, chicken or the egg? Does it matter if I analyze this? Because it's not really a real His Dark Material story. However, in the earnestness of our canon, right, the girls gone canon, I will analyze this right eagerly to its full his dark materials extent and it's interesting i did learn also alongside this pullman introduced kate bush to gaiman to neil Hmm. gaiman on a book tour uh when he was out in a book tour and she came to visit he introduced her to gaiman on that and they hooked up some ideas and creative thought process so that's cool. I don't know that. That's kind of yeah. neat. I, I love this little this little world, this little fictional book song world. That is interesting. I didn't know that either. So that's pretty cool. And like, yeah, I mean, it isn't, it isn't a historic materials story, right? Like, as you said, Audible, they're like, all right, Phil, we want to make this story. And as you said, they thought it would be more marketable if it were a historic materials story. So he did write it with that in mind he did write it towards that right but ultimately he was very interested in writing that ghost story and i think what i've noticed that i i thought was really strong about the story from the get-go from the from the very beginning that differentiates it from the other books that we've read within this universe is it starts off with dialogue and actually a lot of the plot is written through that dialogue and i think that's because pullman really wrote this to be an audiobook right he wrote it to be delivered as spoken as and so i think a lot of the story actually moves forward not through the narration but the dialogue between the characters of horley and grinstead primarily and you know to some extent the other characters that are there who later le- later chaplain, leave the whatever yeah and for me, I, I think that the way that Pullman brought it all together and, and did that and was experimenting with that is quite nice. Yeah. I do think it's really driven by audio. That is definitely a great point. As I mentioned, I didn't listen to the audiobook. I, I might. Shame. I have a big drive next week to myself mm-hmm. for the old Independence Day. I'm driving out to the old Midwest. You know, so those great lakes, the lake I'm seeking them, I'm going toward them. Yeah, I want that lake effect, you know, that, that good good, that Azriel good oh, okay. good. But, <laughs> I'm just kidding, ish. And, I don't know, I, I do want to be contrarian for a moment and say that yes, the dialogue is such a driving factor, but a lot of the biggest reveals and the biggest gotcha moments of this story are actually really heavily foreshadowed in the non-dialogue moments right like the actual just the interior moments and uh the things that Horley observes passively about Grinstead those are so interesting to me and there are so many moments that now I would argue Horley notices Grinstead doing something that he brushes off 
and later comes back to haunt us, right? It comes back to haunt the story of like, oh, Horley, you fool. Had you just opened your eyes at this moment and noticed Grinstead maniacally laughing next to you like an evil villain. Uh, yeah. It is really interesting. I think that it is a very effective, it's such a quick story and such an effective use of story I made my husband read it this week. He was like, yeah, this was really good. Yeah, And we we discussed it before this for a little bit. We had a really good conversation getting warmed up for this chat. And he even was like, it was just a good mystery suspense kind of story that hit all those right moments of like, aha, but then the interior of Grinstead was this. And then you suddenly realize when you hit the end of the story, all those moments that were telling you to be concerned and you didn't get concerned yeah until it was too late too late and they're all dead for me it it happens the other way right like as you said you pointed out it's uh grinstead's actions that are told through narration where you're like horley like fucking pay attention but because uh because (laughs) it's being shown right and i think pullman does a great job of like showing rather than telling uh through that dialogue and it, it almost feels like so is it closer to within like Grinstead's, I guess. It's third-person narration, right? As opposed to close third. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can sort of see that Horley says things in his dialogue and reveals things about himself and his past, etc. that um, really go to show you, like, he's kind of an asshole. I mean, Grinstead's an asshole also, but in a different way. But but Horley's an insecure, pretentious asshole, and that comes through in the dialogue <laughs> in, a, in a way that makes you think, like, how can Grinstead fucking like this guy? And turns out he doesn't. But then Grinstead... It turns out he was actually, like, using him because of that. That's what's so interesting to me is that, like, I I guess I didn't think about that insecurity that you just mentioned, but it does show through, and that's obviously what Grinstead uses, right, to, like, his success for a hot, beautiful second until he... Yeah. But... He uses that and he latches it, onto it. Yeah, he uses it, latches onto it, and mm-hmm. he's like, so you, are you going to show me these things then, right? Like, uh, plays off of Horley's desire to show off in order yes. to get to that moment of privacy. So that that's where I see the plot being so driven by the dialogue. And then, but, mm-hmm. but as you pointed out, right, it is also third person, right? A lot of the ending moments, those big ending moments Ugh. of... All right, so we are murdering Horley, uh, are done through the narration <laughs> and not through dialogue. And honestly, those twists and those turns right there, when it comes to the Grinstead versus Horley moments, that it's really good writing. I, I again, I know that lately, if you've listened to our LaBelle Sauvage episodes, I may not have been very easy. On our friend, yeah, I don't Phil, think he's our friend, but our friend Philip Pullman. <gasps> I just want to say that this story, for the twenty-one pages of its existence in ebook format, it's a good story. It's fun. It's twenty-one pages of my life. I don't regret. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, sorry, that's a little bitter. I don't mean that in a negative way. I just really do mean like it's like twenty-one pages of a story that I was happy that I read. Uh, and I don't know, before we dig into this plot in too much immense detail, I, I, I'm going to read how this was marketed. Uh, this came out 2017, right? Like 2016, 2017 was when this started having PR about it. Pullman 
was also at the same time writing La Belle Sauvage, which we've covered uh, and working towards, I want to say working towards Secret Commonwealth, right? Probably. That's my assumption. Yeah. I mean, you got to know where you're going. Yeah. Right? On that crazy, crazy and, train. And he's, he's, he's an architect, right? Like, when we talk about the architect versus yeah. gardener thing, um, that distinction that George R. R. Martin makes in terms of writers, Philip Pullman has been explicit about his process and that he knows where the story is going. He knows what he wants it to be. And for example, when it came to the His Dark Materials trilogy, he always knew it was going to be a trilogy. He always knew it was a story that Mm -hmm. would fit in about, as he said, 1,200 pages. So he knows where, I think he wants that Book of Dust story to go. There are things that he still discovers every now and then. Okay, George. Did you hear that? George, you listen, baby. Stop. They're not our friends. Was that to George? Neither of them are our friends. No, I think he just like said it. You know, that's just his process. But actually, I don't know if it was to George or not. Side note. I do think that's a really apt way to describe his process, though, because like an architect, Pullman is really precise about some of the rules of his universe, right? Like the ones that are very important. Pullman is just like very precise in some of the ways he plants things. He wants them to grow in specific areas. George R.R. R. Martin is like, let's grow everywhere. Yeah. Let's let that foliage go, baby, and let's see what the most beautiful flower of all is and pick it and make it my nucleus. And I love that. I do love that. I think it's chaos. I think it's chaotic good. Pullman is very much so like neutral good or like. You know, like he's like very like by the rules, lawful good, the, lawful good. I like the I like both of those approaches. I obviously love you know the depth that George brings to his stories. Oh yeah. Obviously, this is not a compare the two stories like cast, but we are here in this conversation now. I don't know how we got here. I mean, we read yeah, them. We both. read them both, and you probably you might read them both if you're listening to our podcast. But I think. What I like, what I like about Phil Pullman is it reminds me of something that N.K. Jemisin said to an extent. Like magic doesn't have to be fucking explained. You know, she didn't say it like that. She said it much better mm-hmm. because she's N.K. Jemisin. Um, but <laughs> Philip Pullman, as you said, he he defines and gives the rules to the things that need to be given weight and definition in his universe. But he lets some of the other things lie. He doesn't have to you know flesh everything out and i think you'll see that mm-hmm. we'll see that in this story and i think that's part of what makes it so magical right magic isn't something that we can always understand yeah. it's something that's beyond us and and gives weight to the mystery and the unknown that whether or not it's religious or not is something that can feel very spiritual yeah what what he doesn't say in this story is actually what's the most effective in what leaves us hanging on at the end Mm -hmm. right like with question marks going wait a second but like what about and so before we dig into the plot i do want to say our spoiler scope for this episode is going to cover i mean i think we might reference a couple little things from the northern lights golden compass the subtle knife the amber spyglass Mm -hmm. throughout the main episode we do have a discussion at the end if you haven't listened to our normal his dark materials episodes we include a very dusty discussion at the end that spoils the outer books right you're gonna hear spoilers from the books of dust from la belle sauvage from the secret commonwealth and also from the novellas you're gonna hear spoilers of Lyra's Oxford, Once Upon a Time in the North, The Collectors, 
obviously, and Serpentine. Mm. Yes. So keep an eye out for that. But we do have how this was marketed to the public. So how it was marketed? In this darkly delicious sliver of a tale, Philip Pullman offers a glimpse of the enigmatic girl who will become the sinister Mrs. Coulter. On a cold winter's night, two art collectors are settled before a fire in the senior common room of a college in Oxford, discussing the unusual pieces one has recently added to his collection. What the two men don't know is the portrait of a striking young woman and the bronze sculpture of a fearsome monkey are connected in mysterious ways. How could they imagine that they are about to be caught in the crossfire of story which has traveled time and worlds? This description doesn't really bury the lead at all. (laughs) If this description was not told to you before reading this story, there'd be a lot of framework left out, in my opinion. Uh, I I do understand why they decided this description was the best description. Uh, This revolves around Coulter. Or sorry, Marisa Van Z is her name in this. uh, Very important. But it, uh, it does feel very different. Like this... This little PR release about the story feels a lot different than the main story, in my opinion. Uh, it, it does. It does feel quite different. Like, this is it, I guess, like, at the most kind of basic level, but it's never really phrased in that way at all. And these yeah. are assumed things. Like, I, I mean, they're implied. They're, yeah, there they're are implied. a lot of moments very implied. But it doesn't feel like that feels like they're confirming and canonizing things. And it also at the same time feels like they were like, Philip, we need this to be more his dark materials related. Yeah. And we are going to reference that a lot because like, again, part of me is sitting here like, there's so many opportunities for discussion about plot. And the other part of me is sitting here like, none of this matters. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's funny that they tried to make it matter so i i I would bet philip pullman had no say in this synopsis so none yeah none absolutely none i bet but i i I think it's a i mean even if you i guess it's that his dark materials connections it's it's kind of a fun story it's kind of a weirdo story i I mean i think it's a good story regardless you know regardless of the his dark materials stuff Uh, well let's jump on into the collector's in December of 1970, there are two men sitting in the senior common room of a college. Their names are Horley and his guest, Grinstead, who's speaking in quiet voices about a painting that Horley had just bought through a man named Falcondale. And, you know, there are other members of the college milling about as well. We'll hear more about them in a little bit. And I do think that there's such a great foundation of academia going on here, mm-hmm. right? Once more, Pullman style, that is the most significant part of the scene. For education and educators, there's a ton of social commentary on the college being flat out broke, right? Heat is shoddy. There's a 30 second timed light in the hall at night. The porter doesn't work past a certain time and the phones are cut also at a certain time. So there's definitely an economic kind of factor here that is uh, the the bass in the background just beating to a drum time. And Pullman himself is often painting these vulnerabilities of the college. 
not just for the mystery and the suspense and terror of the story, but also not dissimilar from, you know, Sanctuary as a core concept in his mm. stories being dismantled by the church throughout Lyra's story. Or, of course, in La Belle Sauvage, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the discussion, some of these themes as well. Yeah. Or also the idea of infrastructure. What if we had better better things like that? Anyway. Um, Resources there? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, they're discussing a portrait done by a painter who rarely did portraits. An artist whose last name was Skipton and... The portrait is of a young, fair-haired woman in front of a dusty pink curtain wearing a blue blouse and cream skirt with the most extraordinarily ambiguous expression. One moment she looks cold, oh, disdainful, man. and contemptuous. But the next moment, on fire, lost, hopeless, and yet full of sexy yearning. I hope someone says that about me, oh, a picture so of young, me in one so day. So supple. But I'm dead. I know. Was I supple? Oh my was god. I young? <laughs> oh my god. I have a couple thoughts here. The first is that the male gaze. Oh, oh my god. god. Oh my god. Um <laughs> The second is I-, I love that like that rarity that this artist never did portraits. That's how rare this was. Uh Hairgate gotta bring up Hairgate here, right? Mm-hmm. We have the yes, Hairgate yes. showing back up, right? Is it dark hair? Is it tawny hair? The lion color from the amber spyglass? Or is it is it dark and brunette and raven? Who is she, Pullman? Tell the truth. Is it Nicole Kidman? Or is it not? I mean it really goes to show is it right? Ruth? the influence that uh Nicole Kidman had on his portrayal. Even though I I'm still baffled by that one scene. I mean the influence Nicole Kidman had in general yeah, it was a weird scene. She, uh, the she's a great in general, actress. though. She is. She is a great culture. I'm just like, what? What did they do with her in this movie? I mean, I'm gonna be honest that the moments she did have from the movie are good. They're they're good moments. There's just that one scene. There's just that one scene where I'm like, weird. Yeah. No, yeah. you're right. You're right. I I do think that was just like from cutting and tonal things and. I don't know. So I, I see why her fair hair. I mean, Coulter yeah. is described as raven-haired, right, in the beginning, dark-haired. Then Nicole Kidman, along came a spider. Here she is, and now she's blonde. Yeah. Uh, but Lyra was always kind of like mousy or fair-haired. So here we are. Yeah. Coulter's being described as fair-haired. He's retconned it. We're retconning ahead. And I do have to love that her outfit is like total high fashion, a blue blouse, a cream skirt. I'm glad, this is weird to say, but I'm kind of glad that it wasn't like some pink frilly thing. I I love hearing that she was in a blue blouse and a cream skirt, especially because this means even back then in 1970, whatever in her world, whatever it was in her world, uh, this was her color. Royal blue was her shirt. You know, and good. The TV show got it right. She wears a lot of great blues in the TV show. Yeah, I think we're looking at something like the late 1800s slash early 1900s is what they're implying for the for the time period of this painting being done. So, yes, it's always been that timeless. And, you know, the wiki calls this out. Um, 
But it is obvious, right, when you're reading the story that the description that Pullman is pulling inspiration from as he describes uh, the expression on this portrait's face is inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, which I don't think I need to explain that to anyone. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. In terms of the subject's expression and how enigmatic it is or how people perceive it, and that nod to the Mona Lisa is made even stronger with the name of the painter's daughter, uh, Leonora, right? Which is quite similar to Leonardo. So Leonora skipped in Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, da Vinci sounds different from skipped in, but you can see like that slight, slight reference. Honestly, I'm really glad you brought this up because I spent an embarrassingly long amount of time trying to figure out what Leonardo skipped in or what the skipped in painter meant. And I was just like, I can't find anyone from the symbolist movement. I can't find anyone from the realist movement. And I was just getting kind of frustrated. And then you were just like, oh, this is an obvious reference to Leonardo da Vinci and blah, 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 blah. And thank you. Thank you for being that part of my brain I didn't bring along today. And I mean, it makes sense, right? Because da Vinci's style of painting, right, isn't at all, right, what a lot of the other works it's off it's not it's not what this is it's not impressionist at all like the impressionists are reacting Mm -hmm. to da vinci being like we don't need to do artwork like that anymore so he's mixing things which i think is fun pullman's uh pullman doing that and it's definitely like a total art episode this is a uh you know you know who we should have brought on even though she's not in this universe is san rixian Sam Rixian would have had fun talking to us about some of these, and maybe we'll consider that. Maybe we'll do an art episode someday. You never know. But we've done music. You know, I think you guys would love to scroll some art. I almost minored in art history, but I didn't feel like taking the two extra classes. They're hard. They're hard classes. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I really love these little reaches into art. You know, Pullman is a, he loves poetry. We talked about this in our very first The Amber Spyglass episode. Uh, We've talked about it before then, too. We've talked about tons of different poems in relation to the historic material series and things that have inspired Pullman. But art is exciting to talk about, honestly. I feel like I don't get to enough. And there are strong feelings in the story about art, for sure. And that (laughs) really shines through. So they go on to talk about that painter's daughter that you brought up, Leonora skipped in now they say that she's totally rose style right like throw the heart into the ocean she must be nearing 100 years old oh my god she couldn't stand the picture right this picture of the girl she loathes it she had confirmed the identity of the painting at falcondale who we talked about's gallery and told them she wanted the painting burned the day it was made which is some very strong feelings very strong. That's pretty That's pretty strong. That's pretty weird. Must mean something. Grinstead moves the conversation to the other piece that Horley has also procured, which is a bronze sculpture, a foot high, French, a monkey, sitting up, reaching its hand out toward the viewer. It had an expression of savage greed and brutality, but it was perfectly sculpted and it held a certain tension in its pose. Like any second it could spring out at you and tear your eyes out. It had been made by Marc-Antoine Duparc, a minor symbolist artist, and some of these staffers, like the visiting professor of philology, librarian, and chaplain, get sorted and set to go to bed. But Horley and Grinstead put another log in the fire. 
Uh, there are so many art references here. I do think that the reference to Park is probably Henri Park, a famous artist from then that often was a buddy of Charles Baudelaire, who I'm sure I will be bringing up this episode. And I love that we get this display of the room of who's who at this college. We don't hear who the college is. Obviously, in the PR, like we said, they said it was Oxford, so probably Will's World, which we'll be reminded of eventually. Uh, But we do get, again, the visiting professor of philology, a librarian, a chaplain, who all come back, but they go to bed. They're all like, we're gonna go, going to bed. And Horley and Grinstead are ready to keep chatting all night. And I love this view of philology. We don't actually hear philology in the story at all. Uh, We often get kind of these moments from Pullman where he's like, theologian or scientist or this or that. And he gives them specific phrases and words and careers based on the world they're in. Philology is the branch of knowledge dealing with structure, historical development, and relationships of a language or languages. It's a really fun opportunity to showcase Will's world if this is Will's world and show that dynamic of the colleges versus Lyra's Oxford. He's careful not to really give away much to tell what college this is, even though we talked about it being Oxford from the PR. There's a lot of etymology to follow in some of these names that we're getting to. Grinstead could be deriving from East or West Grinstead in Sussex, or even the Old English green, as in green plus stead, place, or Horley's name, probably coming from the town in Surrey. We'll hear the story of the bronze monkey soon, and we do have a real-world person here for Dupark, who seems to be kind of of an amalgamation of names, right? Uh There's the famous composer and arranger, Henri, but also we get this note about Barbidienne, who is the person who casts the monkey. So that is most definitely a reference to Ferdinand Barbidienne, a famous French metalworker who's known for his bronze foundings. It makes me think of how valuable bronze was at one point, right? Like Corinthian bronze for the Greeks. But it also makes me think a little bit of alchemy. Uh, We talked a lot about alchemists back when we covered the subtle knife. Barbidian is famed as someone who did groundbreaking work in bronze and metals. His works were different than any other work that had been created at his time. And it makes you wonder about the statue, right? And we'll talk a little bit later about placebo effect when it comes to some of the reveals of the Mm -hmm. statue. But I do think there's a thought train worth exploring of, is this statue cursed inlaid with some sort of alchemy and magic, right? In light of the time we spent on other metal alloys in this story, Mm. specifically the subtle knife and, of course, the blade that severs demons, as well as the guild of men having cast the subtle knife. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. thought. It's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of references here, and he's mixing and matching, right, as, as we've pointed out and as you've, you've shown, um, elements of real real artists from our world and ones that uh, are not. So it, it gives you a sense it's Will's world, but it's not our world. That's for sure. They gaze at the art of old benefactors and portraits hanging in the room, but Grinstead redirects their conversation to the bronze monkey once more. Uh, interestingly, bronze monkey, not brass monkey, that chunky monkey. That chunky monkey. 
Brass monkey. Brass monkey monkey. Horley says it's not worth much. And do you think that that could have inspired him? Anyways. Um, I mean, yeah, because she's crafty not. and she's just his type. Oh, my God. Boo, 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 it's canon. Uh, this is. I'm literally telling you that she's be. crafty is about Mrs. Coulter. Anyway, so Philip Coleman listens to the Beastie Boys. Um, (laughs) Horley (laughs) says it's not worth much, and you need peculiar taste to actually enjoy it all the time. And he tells him that the piece had changed hands so rapidly, it was part of a show in London, acquired by the Maeterlinck Gallery, and continued to be sold on from there. This is such a fun train of thought to follow. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're listening to our Song of Ice and Fire episodes, this is like a Sansa, A Feast for Crows episode with Littlefinger where he's like, follow this lineage. Watching this piece of art move from person to person is crazy. And there are, again, more real life references here. Maurice Palidor Marie Bernard Meisterlink, also known as Count Meisterlink from 1932, was a Belgian playwright, poet, and essayist. He was Flemish, but wrote in French, and was a leading member of La Jeune Belgique group, and his plays are kind of an important part of the symbolist movement. Uh, he's he's kind of another front runner for that symbolist movement. Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, does not in fact have a gallery in real life. Again, not our world. Interesting, right? Alternate fictional fanfic realities. (laughs) And I don't know. I I think the symbolist movement feels very significant in this story. Uh, It seems to be kind of the spine of a lot of these artists that are being referenced in the novella. There's a steady percussion beat behind the conversation between Horley and Grinstead of all of these late 19th century artists. You know, the, this movement was a late 19th century movement of French, Russian, and Belgian origin in the arts. Artists wanted to represent absolute truths symbolically through metaphorical movements and images and languages. And it was in a big response to naturalism and realism, realist artists and naturalists. The term was actually used to distinguish them from decadence later on in literature and art, but those attempts kind of fade out in the late 1800s they kind of get grouped no matter what it's strongly related with the gothic component of romanticism and impressionism uh schopenhauer's aesthetics are always very brought up as influential in the symbolist art movement seen as refuge from that dark worn weary world and a lot of works have these strong themes of otherworldliness right like mythology mortality and that raw power of sexuality and we have poems that kind of represent that from the symbolist movement that feel really relatable here, like Luxure by Albert Semain that loosely translates to Lust, fruit of death to the tree of life, forbidden fruit that makes your teeth chatter with envy. Mm-hmm. Or there's also Charles Baudelaire, uh, his poem Correspondences. There are smells that are fresh like children's skin, calm like oboes, green like meadows, and others rotten, heady, triumphant, having the expansiveness of infinite things. Strongly metaphorical images and languages that just speak of innocence, decay, and that certain darkness, right, of mysticism and unknown. And, of course, what is more symbolic, symbolist movement than the alethiometer, Mm. right? Like, that's 
that's literally the foundation of his dark materials. The alethiometer is literally symbolist. And Lyra, in that manner of speaking in the story, is a symbolist herself, right? She's an artist wielding symbolism in this movement, bending his dark materials to her will and to that will, too, right? (laughs) Will with his dark materials and, I don't know, everyone's dark symbolist materials is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes a lot of sense to to be referencing that and putting that into the story and So I think it's so interesting that, you know, you've brought up Baudelaire a couple of times, and as you've said, like, Baudelaire is a a well-known figure within the symbolist movement, and Baudelaire's uh, story, especially, like, Le Fleur de Mal, uh, was a large influence on Oscar Wilde and Oscar Wilde's writing. Oscar Wilde may not be part of the symbolist movement, but if we're talking about cursed paintings... We've spoken about this yeah. little a little before in La Belle Sauvage, but paintings that have like mysterious, magical, cursed elements to them and that lead to people's misfortunes and are tied to people's souls is very much the premise of The Portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. So I think that it's really interesting to have that like woven into here and and the way that we're looking at the story. Something else that I also find really interesting when we're talking about the symbolist movement and the way that it's referenced throughout the story is, so in my opinion, right, granted, I'm not an art historian because, again, I didn't pursue those two extra classes to get the minor in it because it's actually a lot more work than you think it is. It's a lot of memorization. And I was like, I don't feel like studying that hard. (laughs) So, uh, but I did get my major in fine art, though I did not, again, pursue that pursue that minor. So there aren't really any defining aesthetic characteristics, as far as I can tell, within sim- the symbolist movement in terms of technique, right? Like, the story discusses that the painting itself is done in a post-impressionist style, whereas the sculpture might be symbolist. Now, impressionism, post-impressionism, and, you know, part of what that transitions to, the, the movement following after, there's a couple of movements, one of them is fauvism, are, in my opinion, very distinct aesthetically. You, could, you know them when you see them. Like, you would recognize Impressionism in the works of Monet or Van Gogh, right? Where realism takes a back seat because, again, it's reacting to older paintings, right? Where things were more representational and they're using thicker strokes. The painting itself, the paint itself, becomes as much a part of the piece as what it's depicting. And the medium is is uh, spotlighted. So post-impressionism pushes it further by moving away from representational art, right, and veering into more different colors as opposed to sticking so closely to what we see in, in our life, in our world. Though I'm sure we could say impressionist art does that as well, right? And fauvism takes mm-hmm. that much further, right? It's mm-hmm. less focused on the strokes itself, and part of its defining characteristics are these garish, bright colors, which is something that I actually really love about the movement, those colors, and it those take a bigger role, and it was named for this term, deriving from the term beast, fauvism, uh, because people were like, oh, this is horrible, so beastly, right? So raw in its use of color. <laughs> Though some people like that about it, and it, it was definitely embraced. And again, many of these are in reaction to those older paintings, but also in reaction to the rise of photography. Though not all necessarily, but, you know, there are questions of what is the purpose of art? What is the purpose of painting, right? If photography can produce 
exact representational work, then why continue painting in that way? So a lot of art is in dialogue with one another. And so I think that begins an interesting question in a story where a photograph, right, is part of what kicks off the interest in dust at the beginning of The Golden Compass. And something else that I find really interesting when it when we're talking about the monkey being described as a symbolist piece of art, part of the symbolist movement, is that's obviously a piece of information that Horley got from the previous seller, because he might be able to tell from the aesthetics and or the name of the sculptor whom he cites later on, but as far as I can tell, there's there doesn't seem to be like an actual aesthetic like technique or style that you can tell when you're looking at the sculpture or nece- or necessarily like a piece of artwork to say that is symbolist. You have to know the context, right? You you might know it from right. the title or something else that maybe the artist said, but you from you can't tell it from how something is looks technique wise and aesthetically. So it's very much more about the subject matter of the artwork itself and being able to understand those references of the narrative um, it's speaking to or the story. So for Horley to be like, maybe it's symbolist, to me that feels a little bit pretentious or again, it's something he got from the previous seller, but we'll see that more in Horley as the story unfolds. And especially, and of course the, the sculptor who made it was in their world known to be someone who worked within symbolist art so that's Mm -hmm. something that he could piece that together but if he didn't have that how would he know for sure and i think that's interesting for him to say that it's symbolist but not really know what it is symbolizing right part of what was strong about the symbolist work is like they're piecing together meaning by referencing other things and we the readers know what this sculpture is of and frankly i would say it's kind of an in-between because like are the demons symbolism yeah obviously kind of like We've made we've talked about that often throughout the main series, but within this story, if it's meant to be Marissa Vanzi's demon, <laughs> technically it's not really symbolist, right? It's actually very literal and representational. It's literally her monkey demon. Yeah, there's definitely something interesting going on there, and I almost feel like it's something we'll cover in the discussion a little bit too, but that interests me, especially the idea both. of her demon being so symbolist. Yes. It, it's and in between, yeah. It does feel on a total metacontextual level that like it's like the next meaning of life, right? Like what happens when as an artist, as a creative human, when you look at different artwork and different shapes and arrangements, I think it's so interesting how like the naturalist movement is like this is what we can see, this is what's real, this is nature in front of our eyes. And then the next movement is like, I want meaning beyond that. And that's kind of the whole story, right? Like having a demon is having meaning beyond your own body. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I I mean, it's definitely a little of both because technically it is a symbol of Mrs. Coulter, but also it is a literal thing. So it's this really interesting in in between space. I also love the other side of the art with Maurice's painting, as we're going to get into in comparison to the bronze, right? Because there's something that comes up in the symbolist movement that's called the woman question. Mm. Buckle up, Ariana. (laughs) Here's the woman question. The woman. I'm sure. (laughs) So the woman question, it involves new iconic images and women were a very important part of that, right? But they weren't easy to decipher 
by the important people, read men, of the symbolist movement, uh, they didn't understand, was she a threat? Was she an object of desire? Radical women's movements actually started to rise heavily in the 1880s in France, England, the U.S., elsewhere where labor markets existed for women demanding rights. And I guess women didn't want to stay at home anymore, which is kind of hysterical because right now I want to stay at home all the time and not go anywhere. Uh, I digress. Certain qualities associated with being feminine were seen as qualities by some male artists to be really desirable, right? Like sensitivity, museness, spirituality, self-sacrifice. But the feminine is also associated with undesirable qualities, right? Too emotional, too seductive, the Delilah. She's going to rob the men of their potency, destroy society. Images of women depicting females, a dangerous person, destroying male artists in society, yada, 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 desire, sexuality, asexuality of the virgin with intelligence and reason of man. You get it. That whole entire shebang. It's really interesting how Marisa's painting of herself in this story becomes depreciated in comparison to the monkey that does all the murder oh interesting yeah yeah and the monkey is the thing that is so terrifying and they they project onto the painting but turns out the painting's also just cursed <laughs> suckers uh, we'll talk about that in a second because yeah people are like it's it's kind of odd how fast and often these are both being sold, as if people couldn't wait to get rid of it. There's no lack of buyers, though. And Grinstead wants to understand, like, why the fuck did you buy it then, Horley? Um, <laughs> but you see, Horley did not buy the monkey uh, so we get more of the mystery of the story, right? Uh, the bronze and the painting continue to just end up in the same place, in the same collections, no matter what. Someone buys the painting, and a few months later, the bronze comes up for sale, and they end up buying that too, or the other way around. Or they'd buy one and then be given the other as a gift, or perhaps they'd win it in a bet. And I think the bet insertion here is fun, um, because it kind of just like reminds me a little bit of how Lee Scoresby came to possess his balloon, and be like, I guess I'm an aeronaut now. <laughs> it's a curse of fate. It it's is. It's one of the many curses of fate the story doles out. It is. That's a great thought. And, you know, with no intention, they keep happening. Same place, over and over. Falcondale, the man that sold it to him, noticed it first. And after following the records, Horley was like, yeah, something's going on here. <laughs> the person who last bought it was a man who owed Horley money. He bought a Charpentier mezzotint and never paid. The lawyer chased him down and he offered the bronze monkey up instead. And obviously this was worth more than he owed. So Horley took it, not knowing the connection between the two. Interesting. The uh, lawyer's name was Bonnier. Uh, That's an interesting name. Or Bonnier. Mm. <laughs> Have you thought Bonnier? it might be pronounced Bonnier? Sorry. Boner? Bonnier. Boner? Boner? <laughs> Bonierville. Interesting. Uh, Anyways, that's dusty. Please. Yes. Go on, Eliana. Yes. So, you know, what's sold here is a mezzotint, and, you know, while we're being artsy, right? It, a mezzotint is a type <laughs> of print, spe specifically like intaglio printing, which is made by taking a piece of metal and etching into it, and 
then you'll rub ink into it, right? And the ink will sink into the grooves of the plate that you made. And then when you place mm. a piece of paper over it, then the ink will transfer, creating your print. So the way that mezzotint works, which is why it was really interesting, is you would rough up a portion or like maybe like etch smaller parts. And that allowed you to put different gradations of tints, the shades, right? Which allowed you to get not just blacks and white, or quote unquote white, right? In terms of the the prints that you're making, but allowed you to get half tints, so those those grays and those in betweens. So apparently, this sculpture was worth more than uh, the man owed Horley. So Horley was like, you know, fuck it, I'll take it, not knowing the connection between the painting and the sculpture. And until last week, when Horley bought the painting, and Falcondale opened up, telling him about everything. So Horley's like. This has all been going on since before either of them were born. It's so pointed here. Something that feels really strong after rereading this passage right here is that Horley is trying to explain how the painting and the statue, the statue of the monkey and the painting of Marisa continue to get separated and brought back together. Yes literally separated then brought back together like woman and monkey the fact that like as we've talked before Maurice is probably severed from this demon the signs are all there okay the signs are really all there if you've read La Belle Sauvage no spoilers hang out in the discussion the signs are definitely there and We'll be getting into a lot of this this whole relationship between Marisa and her demon in Amber Spyglass because it really it, it deepens, right? Like their relationship becomes really complex. Uh, it's exciting. We got to talk about it a lot in the Northern Lights and also in series one and two of the TV show. And I think that dynamic being explored, especially in this context via being severed from image and symbol, it's mm. so interesting and it changes, right? Like from the beginning, we see her violence towards herself and the monkey in those first two books. But then we see her, you know, her own demon doubting her in the Amber Spyglass. And it, it feels prominent here. Yeah. Or if not severed, like the witches or, you know, what Lara can do. Whatever the yeah. fuck the answer is. Yeah. Again, discussion. Yeah. Um, it is interesting. It does feel very much like that. It it really comes through in in that. And this is a an idea that you know Philip Pullman was dabbling with a little, right? As considering the novellas and the stories that he was putting out soon after this mm-hmm. audiobook, Falcondale had a letter that he had given a copy of to Horley from a woman in Moscow to a distant cousin in London, a minor aristocrat written in French about 70 years ago about a scandal in her social circle. And so the story itself doesn't actually give us the timing of when this short story occurs, even though, like, I guess the synopsis kind of gives an, gives us an idea. But I think it's these moments that kind of help us place it in time. Because the wording is at first a little ambiguous, just because of, like, the way the sentence is constructed. But because you can calculate it to mean either the Russian Revolution versus the French, despite all the references to, like, because of all of the references to Paris soon after. But because of the artistic movements that are referenced throughout this, 
Um, those all happened decades after the French Revolution. So you can place the timing of this story 70 years after the Russian Revolution. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That actually, like, really also fits in with timeline-wise in our world, IRL, yeah. with that movement for symbolism and, like, okay. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, I think that that's the thing. Like, the timeline for Impressionism and symbolist work in our world is what tells us the revolution they're talking about is not the French Revolution. It must, therefore, yes. be the Russian Revolution in 70 years Especially after Especially with Moscow. Yeah. 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 So. And... I love this next bit because it goes on to say that a friend's husband, a diplomat who had been representing Russia to Paris, had been shown the monkey and bought it. He sent it home on the luggage to his wife in Moscow, who fucking hated it. She was like, get this fucking <laughs> shit out of my house, first of all. Second of all, you haven't been home in 12 months. Who the fuck <laughs> even are you? Uh, but yes, yeah, so she hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, and thought it was an embodiment of evil she even went to the Lent to have a priest spend the night to exercise it, and he spends the night in the salon where the monkey was, and in the next morning she comes downstairs, priest is dead on the floor, head bashed in, monkey covered in his brain, guts, and blood. Yeah, so we start to get more of that ghost story aspect of this story, um, but it also ties a little into Mrs. Coulter's storyline in many ways, right, from the from the main trilogy of... You know, like, how many members of the Magisterium, the religious order, did she have to step on to advance? I mean, they liked it, but how many did she have to have to step on to advance? But also, if we're talking about the murder of a priest, a godly man, right? I mean, Mrs. Coulter does play a pretty big role in killing God's mouthpiece, so. Probably not her first, probably won't be last. Taking down the authority, yeah. Yeah, one by one. <laughs> and they don't ever find out how this happened like no one knows did someone bash his head in no one knows that's probably the answer but the police take the monkey with them they put it up for auction and then it's bought by a collector who gives it to the moscow gallery where the painting of the girl was again so we again see this artwork collide come together i love it uh one of my favorite you know still art pieces uh, my favorite trope is moving pictures and statues. You know, when you're not mm. looking, the doll moves. When you're not looking, like the that. statue moves. That's scary. It's creepy as hell. Uh, you're not there yet in your watch, Aliana. Someday when you get through Doctor Who, New Who, you'll, you'll meet them. But the Weeping Angels are a very dangerous foe who do that same thing. And I learned today this trope is called Art Imitates Life. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Knowing what we know, though, and this is a question I'm going to ask like eight times tonight. Was it art imitating life? Or was someone else, like Grinstead, obsessed with these pieces to the point of murder? Like, who knows? Know. Could be both. Interesting. It's I mean, a question. we won't know. Yeah. We won't ever know you is the truth, know. I'm going to be honest That's with you. True. We're never going to know. But We get to decide. Isn't really it's in our hands now. Yeah, it's our As canon. The readers. Wow. I mean, actually, I think <laughs> I think Philip Pullman would agree with that, you know, because I, I, I've seen him. He, he puts a lot, I think. He's very into the power of the readers. Um, as long as, you know, you can justify it within the text. He's very into that. So. That's true. That's true. I won't fault him that. And now. Between sips of brandy, Grinset announces 
So they're both yours. <laughs> he has the if Horley plans to keep them. Horley wants to donate the babies, the art, <laughs> both. Uh, Horley wants to donate the painting to his college when he dies, and the statue to a rival college just to be mischievous, just for the lulls. And oh, is that <laughs> foreshadowing? Ah, yes, interesting, interesting. Is Grinstead from a faux college? Because that would be foreshadowing then, right? That, like, he dies thanks to the statue, oh, maybe. and then he dies thanks to taking the painting. Hmm. Hmm. Mm, wait, Severin kills as well? Hmm. Oh. Anyways, anyways. Well, Grinstead wants to see these pieces, and Horley says he'll take him to do so, and as they make to look at the pieces, Grinstead asks about the guy that owed him money. Horley's like, ah, his name was Rainsford, and he wasn't sure if he could trust him. Grinstead says, oh, I bought a fake Vernet from him once. I think this was about Claude Joseph Vernet, right? He he used to paint beautiful French landscapes, which seems to be the prominent theme going on in this chapter of beautiful French things. Yeah, I, I think you're right, because like there's two Vernets this could have been, but I the other one's like Horace Vernet. It's more into like drawing like battles and shit. And mm-hmm. based on like his style, it, it just seems like it's more likely that it was Claude Joseph Vernet, right? Because I, you know, Grinstead and Horley's tastes, um, for the most part, seem to be more towards that. And also, Horace Vernet would have been more contemporary. Happens a little later yeah. than some of the artists that they seem to be into in this story. Yeah, so. this seems thematically to fit for sure. Yeah. They head to the room where all of their items are, right? Which it turns out and. You know, we talked about the underlying beat of economic disparity going on at this college. Uh, It is hot in this room. There's a lot of hot, hot, hot air happening here. He has a furnace. There's even a little joke that Horley's like, ha, 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 I get away with it. You know, they'll never know. Ha, ha, ha. But outside of here, it was freezing, right? They were not having a great time. The common room was freezing cold. And Horley, when they get back, pulls out some wine, he hangs up his dressing gown, he switches on a lamp, and he turns off one of the electric fires, because he's like, it's too hot in here. (laughs) I do like this, because it's very significant to tell us where we are. Uh, It's reminding us we're definitely not in Lyra's world, because we have electric fires, there Mm -hmm. are phones, there are lots of hints. And it was released as Will's world, as we mentioned, but that doesn't really line up later as we start to question the timeline right of this man knowing marisa from these two worlds then it wouldn't make sense for the main story it wouldn't make sense for lyra or will but i don't know i think it might have just gotten marketed as such again this wasn't a historic material story at all at one point uh so the publishers were like make your money phil make it one so say lovey I mean, I think it could be Will's world, and we'll we'll talk about that a little more later on, but it's definitely not ours, right? I mean, as yes. evidenced by, again, that gallery not existing in their our world, but it's maybe one that's put off because of the use of that word electric versus enbaric, the tip-off. It was very significant. Indeed. And another our world thing is they're pouring claret, right? They're drinking claret. It's sour. It's unpleasant. But nothing worse than the wine they already had at dinner, Horley thinks, dot, dot, dot. Grinstead asks if he remembers the very first piece of art he ever bought, and Horley does. 
It was a dirty postcard, bought it in Egypt during his national service. He felt ashamed and threw it away after a week. So the sequence actually tells us a lot about Horley and hints towards the later parts of the story. It makes you question, like, wait, so like, does Horley like actually appreciate art? Or does he just like the prestige of being associated with it, of being a collector, right? He criticizes the postcard's composition, but I, I'm just like, I mean, is it not art? Someone made that. It's an original. Is that not still worth something? It's part of the artist's journey. And he loves to talk about the importance of the works that he's acquired, but while he speaks of the aesthetics of the monkey, he always like places more emphasis on the name brand of who made it versus what's actually in the artwork or... or same with the painting, right? Um, who made it and all the stories about it, but never actually anything about what it looks like and the technique and what drew them towards these pieces. And, you know, the Claret, um, it's something that actually Grinstead needles him for later on. He's like, what, what do you mean? Like, we've just been eating this shit. We've just been drinking shit all night. So you can tell that Grinstead doesn't appreciate Horley's taste and it, it kind of shows Horley might not be a man of taste, though he fancies himself to be one. Yeah, he's definitely trying to live up to that, right? Yeah. And that college itself is showing that. The The college itself that he works at is kind of that same attitude of trying to be bigger than it actually is. You know, having mm. all of these fancy titles and fancy people coming in and viewing art and having a good talk in the common room, but at the same time... They have a 30-second light timer. Yeah. They can't even keep the fucking <laughs> they lights ain't on. shit right now. Yeah. 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 It's, it's rough. And uh, that's definitely a percussive beat behind this chapter. Like, the whole time, there's just these little snippets that Philip is putting out. I, I think it's very interesting, that brand name versus what actually the artwork means and how that is what does him in yeah. in the end, right? Being too concerned about the brand, whether it was Claret, whether it was the painting, and by the end, he feels, you know, nauseous and starts puking, but that's the poison, baby. Yeah. <laughs> the poison was this art. <sighs> and finally, he decides he's going to reveal the painting of the girl, right? Whoever her name is, he says. And it's a small painting. It's not that large. It's 15 by 12. The girl sits modestly. Her fair curls are restrained with a red ribbon. And we get this line that Grinstead's eyes were fixed on the face in the picture, and Horley was taken aback by the intensity of his gaze until he remembers the man is a collector, after all. But this was more than acquisitive connoisseurship. It was feral. On reread, that is the line that gives it away, right? Like, this is the very first break where you're like, wait a second, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And... I love the use of feral, especially in response to how we've seen Marisa and her monkey respond to people, right? In a feral manner. Uh, we've seen other men have this same response towards her as yeah. well in her actions. So it, uh, the, the, the way that this is eliciting that feels great. Yeah, absolutely. It really, it really stands out. And Horley asks if, wait, so, like, have you seen her before? And Grinstead says he knows who she is. And he's like, nah, you're pulling my leg. What's your name? He's like, Marisa Van Z. I'm like, I don't know about Ooh. that. But <laughs> uh, Horley doesn't understand. The painting had to be almost 80 years old. And Grinstead explains that he knew her. And for a short time, 
They were lovers. She was the most remarkable woman he would ever know. And Horley tries to blame this on the wine and grins and says, no, no. The wine's shitty. And reveals that he's known this picture for half his life. He saw Skipton painting it. And also he knows the monkey! And he met Marisa Van Zee in Skipton's studio when she was 18 and he was 23. And he recognized something that Horley could never imagine of her. She came from a different world. This is kind of a bombshell. Yeah. As far as like a story that me and you just spent a long time being like, it's not important, so don't act like it is, don't at us. Okay, so this this changes things. Yeah. Right? Uh, Marisa Van Zee, A. That's some parentage questions I have. We meet Marisa's mom in the extended series. No spoilers, we'll talk about it later. But her father's unknown to us. We don't know who her father is. We don't know who she had to marry to get all the way to Mr. Coulter. And to Asriel and banging him out. There were some years we don't know about. And the etymology behind this name for her is interesting. Van Zee is a Dutch name and it means by the sea. Down by the bay where the waterfallers where the, where the waterfallers go. Where the fucking, what is it? What are, where the watermelons grow, yes. Do they? Um... No, it turns out I mis- misremembered something in the shred. So anyways, ignore. Mm. Ignore me. Um, yes, that is interesting. Um, Grinstead explains that there are many different worlds and none know about the other. But at rare intervals, a breach, a crack, appears and things slip through. Once you become attuned to it, you can spot these things. And he gestures towards an elephant sculpture on the shelf and, and it's like, that, you were told that was Assyrian, right? And Horley confirms that he was and Grinstead's like, it's not. It comes from another world. <sighs> oh my god! And this speaks to some of the things that we had discussed during the main series of how Azrael's actions, right, in um, creating that enormous window, tearing a hole in the world, uh, caused many of the other windows between the worlds to kind of shift in time and become misaligned. So this might be mm-hmm. one of those repercussions, right? And you think like. Right. It's all happening at the same time to an extent, right? Because it's coming a second time. So there's this long, widespreading effect. Who knows how big the ramifications of that were? But it also reminds me a little of Lyra in the museum being like, wait, 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 wait. This photograph that I'm looking at is supposed to be old? And she's like, wait, no, no. Those are the men who just tried to kidnap me like two days ago and sold me. I or a week ago, whatever. Because it fucks me up, because then I'm like, what about our worlds? Don't we understand? Ooh. Ooh, fringe. Ooh. JJ Abrams. I do have to say, <laughs> oh my god, stop. <laughs> if anything, I'm a Ryan Johnson. Don't do that. To me. <laughs> um, that's so interesting. And the elephant statue, this might just be wishful slash hopeful thinking, but it does feel like a Mulefa nod. Mmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit, like, just like, a, those aren't real elephants. Those are elephants from another world, which is what Mulefa kind of feel like. So it almost makes me wonder, like, what the style looks like. And yeah. I don't know. I think Philip had to have thought of this. Come that's on. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, it could be a Mulefa. From another world. An elephant from another world? I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. But it's not. they're but... way smarter. And they got... They're way cooler. And they do wheelies. I don't know. Our, our elephants are kind of cool. 
Elephants are weak, you know. They don't say that. Don't say that about them. They get hunted by no. white dudes every day. No, every I love day. elephants. Yeah. No, I'm an elephant stand now. You've well, done this. Get good. Get good, elephants. <laughs> Grin said explains that he met the young woman because he was working for old Bertrand Garnier. Fructis, no, just old Bertrand Garnier. And he had to call in Skipton about something, and there she was. And Horley jokes. Did she get here in a flying saucer? But then Grinson tells him not to push it. He just like has a look on That's his my face. Girlfriend. Don't say that. Yeah. Don't say that about the best <laughs> lay of my life. <laughs> and I I just think it's so funny. He like really called this woman and he's like, our relationship didn't last longer than a month, but he really called this woman that he slept with for a month, like but actually less than his lover. And I'm just like, damn. We should just start calling all of our friends of benefits that we've ever had lovers. Like it just sounds so much it has more gravitas that way. Like, why would I call anyone a booty call when I could be like, no, they're my lover. That's true. But you know what? I'm going to tell you the Sims does that. The Sims oh. 4 is like, if you have a high relationship bar, then yeah, bro, you lovers. No one uses so, that term anymore. People should say yeah, we they were should. lovers instead of. They should. Yeah, we used to hook up. I didn't really know what we were. You were lovers. <laughs> oh my God. Well, so he goes on to explain that these worlds are mutually unreachable, which is interesting. And in practice, that their structure leaks. And we get this little passage, and I think this is interesting compared to you saying, like, okay, come on, it was a month-long relationship. Because I don't know that it is. I think we might have some motive of lying going on here. Mm-hmm. He says... Your little pottery elephant, Marisa Van Zee, here a blackbird, there a bus timetable, a small boy, an imaginary friend. They play for hours, swear eternal love, pretend to be king and queen, but she's not imaginary. She comes through that bit of wall behind the greenhouse, and one day he finds someone's mended it, and she's lost forever. Hmm. Okay, that sounded really personal, first of all. I just feel like there was a lot of detail there that's like, what? What does it mean, Pullman? Uh, It sounds too personal. The swear eternal love with an imaginary friend thing going on there. It'd be interesting if this was more of a, like, he actually grew up falling in love with Marisa Van Zee through a window kind of thing. I don't know. For a second, I wondered if this was the window Boreal was going in through, but I think that's some TV show leaking through. I looked it up. Uh, and there is that line about Boreal in the Amber Spyglass. That's where you saw him first, after all, in your world. He must have found some secret window no one else knew about. However, of course, here he says that it was closed up. It's a very interesting part, uh, especially later, because we find out Grinstead is the villain, and he's been lying about, like, everything Mm -hmm. this whole time. So it makes you wonder if this right here is a lie also, or if parts of it are true and he's lying about those parts of it, specifically the Marisa parts of it, of him knowing her for a month. So I actually read this differently. I read that part like, oh, interesting, that feels really pointed. I read it as a reference to the main series where, you know, a young boy and a girl meet and they go on a journey. They swear eternal love to one another. And then the windows have to be closed, and she's lost forever. Uh, I read Will it that Lyra, way as well as like a metaphor about Will and Lyra. Yeah, but it also felt too personal. Of like a 
For a guy that knew about a window for a month that suddenly closed and he knew Marisa Coulter or Marisa Van Zee for a month? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe. But also it might be one of those things where Phil Pullman's like inserting, you know, th- little everyday magic. Why ha- could imaginary oh, friends... Oh, we love Malcolm Pullman. I mean, oh, my... Philip Pullman. <laughs> but like, yeah, but like, of you know, someone okay. and like a little mystery and imaginary friends. But yeah. And... You know, we get this beautiful little line about these worlds. An infinity of worlds and a thousand and one little leaks in the fabric. And that's pretty representative, too. It is. And obviously there's more than a thousand and one little leaks, but it, it, it's a wonderful phrasing. It reminds me a little of that lesson from the main series of Tell Them Stories, because a thousand and one, when I think of that phrase, I, of course, think of a thousand and one nights. Um mm. You know, the Scheherazades, Scheherazade telling stories constantly to stay alive. Tell them stories. <laughs> and this, and tell them ghost, say, like, this ghost story. Tell, tell everyone the story on Audible for <sighs> 30 minutes, however much it costs. <laughs> oh my god, it is 30 minutes. And Grinstead tells him some of these worlds are just like theirs, except for one thing. In Maurice's world, everyone has an animal spirit, a totem, following them. It's part of them, but it's separate, like Pikachu and Pokemon Yellow. Yeah, or Entei. They've been together. Oh my god, Entei. Oh, Entei. Oh my my god. They'd been together less than a month, and there were things Marisa didn't want to tell him, but he felt like it was high politics or diplomatic secrets, but he respected her discretion all the same. All while Skipton was painting this in the meantime. Horley still doesn't comprehend how he can know someone from 80 years ago when he's not even 50. But Grinstead says, it's true. Time passes differently in different worlds. So this is something I'm wondering. Like, since Grinstead says he was there when it was painted, like, did he meet Marisa, right, in this world, step through the window, then return to his world? Like, it, like did it shift? Did the window, like, move? And then he ends up back here decades later. Mm. or i I mean mean, there's any other possible ways that it could have been done but it's obviously one of those things where pullman likes to pull back and keep the mystery he wants us to fill it in yeah he wants us to fill it oh oh Ah, wow we got pull back we got fill in wow amazing 401k yeah it 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 is interesting. It does feel like he's just giving it that little bit, right? Like, hmm, and we'll just give a little bit of story to this part and we'll move on. Uh, I don't know, especially because Horley is just as confused as we are, right? Like, he's very confused. He he tries to make sense of the story and he's like, so you and Marisa came from the same world. And Grinsha is like, no, that's not what I said, first of all. I feel that. And Horley's like, okay, let me rethink these events. And he starts to think of the events. And then suddenly we get the chilling, spine tingling moment where he goes, wait, how do I know Grinstead in the first place? (laughs) You know, that's always great when a main character is like, how do I know this person that seems to be very ominous? Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. So finally, Horley announces... I'm drunk. I'm so drunk. That must be the problem. I don't get things because I'm drunk. 
And Grin said's like, well, we were unpacking the monkey. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, good call. So he goes to get the golden monkey out, but it's in a heavy-duty container. And after trying to open it with pliers and some other shit, a screwdriver, Grinstead is like, why don't you use a nail pole? And he's like, no, I'm going to use a hammer now. So he uses the hammer, leverages the nails open, and Grinstead watches him closely, telling him, keep going, you're nearly there. Yeah, I'm going to be real, like, the vibes here were off, and I was like, that man's about to bash in Horley's head with a hammer. Uh, for a moment, but I guess turns out that would have been really messy and too obvious as murder for yeah, Grinstead. They're symbolists, yeah, they're symbolists. They're proper. They're proper oh college men. Uh, well, the 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 tension grows, right? Cause, yeah, like, Orly is like sweaty, and he's like starting to get ill. Like, like we've all been there. Right? Get a little vertigo. You're a little hungover, and you're like, oh yeah. god, oh god, I either gotta puke or shit. Um, and Horley's like, I might have to do both. So he calls out to Grinstead and he's like, will you please help me finish this? And Grinstead's like, yeah, I'll get the monkey out. And he turns to Horley, who's like staring in horror as he gets the monkey out. And Horley sways on the spot and the picture of Marisa rocks in its easel. And suddenly Horley's like, I don't feel so good. And he stumbles toward the bathroom. He vomits in the wash basin and he freaks out and he's like, call for help, Grinstead, and don't forget. The lights turn off at night after 30 seconds, and the porter is out, so there's no calling out, so you have to go get help physically. So, Grinstead's like, oh no, I'm (laughs) gonna help you, and he leaves the room. He lights up a cigarette, (laughs) and then he smokes the whole cigarette in the stairwell at the foot of the stairs, holds his breath for a minute, and then he goes back into the room. Horley is dead. He packs up the picture of Marisa into a briefcase, takes a pencil from his desk, and looks around, and he finds the garden door key that Horley had let him in with, grabs it, and then he confirms there's nothing else to suggest foul play, and someone would come and see that the man who had succumbed here in this room was dead because of food poisoning, dying alone in his bedroom. So... There's a couple of interesting things going on here, right? The symbolist literary movement drew some inspiration from Edgar Allan Poe. And this story feels to me very much like some of his, right? It reminds me most of all of, of the ones that I've read of the Cask of Amontillado, but turns a little bit on its head. It has some similar elements, right? As Horley's showing off a very rare thing and inviting someone in. But it's actually the guest, Grinstead, who seduces him into doing so and, and lures him. And the roles are reversed. Uh, from Poe's short story where the guest is is killed by being locked into like this little crypt because Poe was like had like this weird hard on for like burying people alive like that's not a joke he kind of really did (laughs) um and yeah Horley ends up being the one dying but also if there's poison right they're both drinking this wine it couldn't have been during dinner and people point out it and the the later people speaking say Horley died from anaphylactic shock, which is uh, an allergic reaction. So where could the poison have been? It's something that only Horley perhaps would have been allergic to, so therefore imperceptible, covered up by the taste of the strong, sour wine, which reminds mm. me then a little of, again, how we started out 
the plot of the Golden Compass, where they okay. attempt to kill, yes, uh, Lord Azriel with that glass of Tokay. That's really clever. I did not put that together. And when you bring up the cask of Amontillado, I love that because so Montresor decides to kill Fortunato because he insulted him, right? And you brought up Best earlier reasons. kind of how Horley is like a dumb bitch. He and is. he like likes art for all the wrong reasons, yes. right? Like he's liking it for the class and for the status. And Montresor buries him alive, right? He buries Fortunato alive and he actually dies of asphyxiation or starvation because of that. That's like yeah. the, the thought behind it that he actually dies because of that. So like you have that same idea of soon Horley will die here and no one will know why, but it was that food poisoning that <sighs> Yeah. I yeah. I mean, they 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 suspect. They're like, this is very suspicious to everyone. <laughs> it wasn't very like easy for him to get away with it. But anyway, because it's a lot of paperwork. Okay, it, it it's like looks real suspicious, right? Because Grin said like least quickly. <laughs> he doesn't take the monkey. He knows it, it'll follow soon enough for him. He locks the garden ah. door behind him, setting off for his hotel. And as he turns onto High Street, a taxi comes far too fast and hits him. The briefcase flies out of his hands and lands on the pavement, and Grinson dies immediately. So it turns out maybe he wasn't a rich art collector. He was an art thief, in fact. And the ghost story part comes to a head as the painting somehow... I mean, it does end up being cursed, right? We were talking about the, the portrait of Dorian Gray earlier. And the sculpture may have been the, the thing that caused the death of one man before, but this time it's actually the painting. And I would say that all of this is so in line with Mrs. Coulter's character, right? Where the men who tried to possess her, project onto her, all of that, they die. I mean, well, first, somehow, you know, obviously, Mr. Coulter, right? Her former right. husband. Uh, but then also Lord Boreal, right? Trying to convince her to play second fiddle to him. And she's like, no, fuck that, and murders him. And whether, you know, it's her likeness or herself, Mrs. Coulter won't be owned by Grinstead, even if he tries to. So you can kind of see a little of a Poe's influence in that story plot. I can see that, and I do want to come back to what you said about that Mona Lisa kind of thing as we get to this different stance of, uh, again, as we said earlier, they all see her and project on her and put that pussy on a pedestal, yeah. you know, in their own way. And in just a moment, we're going to see her again change her facial expression. Yes, yes. So a few days later, we cut to the college staff discussing Horley's death, the monkeys staring at them as they talk about what do we do with Horley's estate? The bursar, Charles, speaks up and tells them all that Horley's guest was actually, interestingly, also killed the same night and had the Horley's briefcase that had the painting within. And Charles asks the chaplain, Eric, what he makes of that, say setting the painting next to the monkey. The chaplain is like, I don't know, maybe Horley had just like given or sold him the painting. How tragic. And they were like, I don't know, we have no receipts. Where are the receipts? And they're like, yeah, it does seem awfully suspicious. And then they remark oh, well. upon the painting of What a very pretty girl. Do you know who she is? No idea, said the bursar. But she looks mighty pleased with herself. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good oh ho, ho, ho. good for marisa you know yeah. like 
I don't even understand the parameters of where the fuck she is during this time. No. But I respect the parameters, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I also, like, you know, it reminds me also of Lyra, right? I think Lyra often looks quite pleased with herself. And I th- I want to say that there's a line or so in the La Belle Sauvage, right? Where Lyra's a baby. I don't think this is a spoiler. Um, where they're like, she looks pretty pleased with herself for having done jack shit. <sighs> Yeah. But I mean, the painting did do something somehow, maybe. The painting did some stuff. There's some magic. I mean, there, also right? Grinstead like, did. I mean, everyone, everyone's doing crazy shit. You know, before we run into our discussion, spoiling some stuff, one of the biggest questions I'm left with is like, is this the placebo effect or is the monkey's violence real, right? Like, that idea, especially with the main theme of the series being self-fulfilling prophecy versus fate versus mm. free will, right? Uh, free will in the story. And, like, the second that he tried to escape with the painting, he died. Yeah. Was that his fate to always die because of this art? Uh, I, I don't know. The sale of the art and those movements of art, I find that interesting. I know that the art world, we're not talking NFTs, ladies, gays, theys, oh thems. We're talking about, you know, real paint on canvas bullshit the world of art is also bullshit just like nfts is what i'm trying to get at but (laughs) like because you got all these rich people like auctioning them off but actually like doing favors to each other while they auction shit off because they've like acquired this art through their either their family's wealth or their status or whatever they've acquired it through and like all these like i mean we've seen the movies okay the crazy art heists and that shit is really interesting to me and the idea of, like, human will being tied to those trades. Will. Different will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like it could be... I think that's part of what makes it such an interesting ghost story, right? It could be either. It could be both, you know? And, like, is there something about these pieces that drive people, like, mad to, like, have them or something also? Or just that man? Yeah. And I don't know. It's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. yeah this one is definitely as a uh a weird novella a side novella of these his dark materials novellas this one's a thinker it's a navel gazer it is well we're gonna jump into our discussion which is of course spoiling the outer works and uh you know the future of his dark materials with the books of dust la belle sauvage the secret commonwealth and of course the outer novellas So if you are not caught up with those books, please tune out now and we'll talk to you in a couple months on our next special bonus Patreon episode for His Dark Materials. Yes. Well, let's get into it. (sighs) There's... Okay, I feel once more that we have to reference that this isn't a real story. However, there are a lot of questions I have. (laughs) <laughs> about the collectors and Marisa Van Z. Okay, according to the Secret Commonwealth, which you've read enough of. Yeah. You've read enough of it. I've read Marisa's enough. maiden name is not the same as her brother's name, right? Marisa's yeah. maiden name in this story is Van Z. It's not Delamere, like her brother or her mother, who we meet in the Secret Commonwealth. So, does that make her half siblings? step-siblings with the man we see in the secret commonwealth i don't know 
I guess maybe we'll find that out. I don't know if we're going to find that out later on. I think I got it as, I took it as half-siblings, but I don't know. I interpreted it as half-siblings. Well, um, and so you also did a little research into the etymology of Delamere, right? So I think it's interesting, though, that like her maiden name isn't Delamare, but you pointed out that Van Z earlier on is a Dutch last name meaning by the sea. And Delamare actually might be something of a play on words where Delamare means um, of the mother. But if you remove that uh, that preposition, and it just becomes Delmare, uh, that just, that means of the sea. So I thought that was interesting. Oh. So, okay, playing with that. I don't know what it means. Just a moment. <laughs> but if they both mean the same thing, wouldn't you think they might be the same? And what would that mean? Would that mean that maybe they've changed their name over I, time? I have no idea. But like, I I'm just implying. Know. I'm implying. I finished. <laughs> I mean, no, it's not something that I know either. This is uh. literally speculation is what I'm saying. But so if it's the same name, but with a different name, right? Like same meaning, different name, a euphemism. Mm -hmm. That almost makes me think of the secret commonwealth as a meta- aspect right like as in like the secret commonwealth and like why would they have changed their name from van z to delamare and then also over this long extended period of time why did they change their name slash how long ago were they around question mark yeah or she just coincidentally slept with two men with similar meaning names yeah that is the other thought I had, right? Like, was that just a different husband? But then also, again, how many husbands has she had across how many years? How many years? And additionally, like, if this is December of 1970, we're speculating it's Will's world, or at least an outer world. It's advertised as Will's world. We know that might not be true. We know it doesn't matter really in the end. But Marisa Van Zee was a teenager. 20, 30 years ago. So, I don't know if it's meant to be 20, 30 years ago, because clearly Skipton, if Skipton's daughter is in her hundred, is like close to 100 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Then it means that Skipton lived long, long ago. So it's still, I mean, it's still a question. How the fuck is Marisa Van Zee a teenager? Um, yeah. during the 1800s of Will's world when she's in her, what, I don't know, probably 40s or so by the 90s slash 2000s or I mean, yes. probably like 90s or so um, when the books were written of Will's world. Yes. I have questions and I have questions. I she do. could be. She actually could be. It, it's more, it makes more sense for her to be a teenager in the 70s of Will's world during the yeah. timeline of the books than that's it does true. for her no, to be a teenager true. in the 1800s. Because like, then she could be in her 50s, you know, by the 90s or so. It does feel like a retcon in some aspects because we know, like, we don't have any canon version of her stepping through these worlds yeah. before, you know, in the yeah. before time. So it does feel like a retcon either way. Yeah. I mean, this whole story is a retcon, let's be real. But, yeah. uh, 
I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about this story as like an abstract, like they don't even count it as any sort of canon, but I can't do that. I just have to find some sort of connection to it's fun. You know, justify it in my brain. It's fun. This is fun for me. And, you know, there are some other elements, right? Like we talk about uh, a, a lot here in the Southeast. Himalayas comes up as a location in this story. We know that Lyra is definitely in the vicinity in Southeast Asia and Nepal here in the story gets talked about in Tibet to the north, and it just feels so pointed. Uh, it feels like Pullman continues to bring this location up in his stories. Yeah, he's just like real into it, I guess. I don't know if he like went on a trip there and was like, I love this place. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. He he has a, a big fixation with it. I'd love to learn more about it, honestly. That might be a, that might be a Pullman question to get asking next webinar we get on, mm. honestly. And there's also something pointed about, like, again, coming back to it, that Marisa and her monkey keep getting separated, then coming back yes. together magically. That was when I understood the metaphor. I, I sat here and I was like, oh, 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 they were separated, but yeah. yet they're back together again. Uh, physically severed from her demon, yet here they are together. And there's almost like this really big contrast between... Lyra and Pan and their severing in the Amber Spyglass and in the Secret Commonwealth, their need to be apart. And let alone the princess that we meet in the Secret Commonwealth, who seems to be kind of uh, some sort of connection to Marisa Coulter or maybe possibly to Lyra, but definitely, obviously, to the Bone V's, mm -hmm. which that's another thought. Uh, so... There's a certain French influence going on in this story. Yeah. Heavy French influence. Almost feels like there could be a connection to Bon Vie in here somewhere. Like, if we stitch together Grinstead's story in this novella with Gerard Bon Vie's story in La Belle Sauvage, I feel like we have a whole ass character. Interesting. Isn't that weird? It was the feralness of Grinstead about Marisa and his obsession with her, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it feels, I don't know, it feels like there's some connection there, especially with that Bonnier character we talked yeah. about. Boner. It, it was being written at the same time. Ralph yeah. Boner from I mean, WandaVision. It might, be, it might be something where, like, you know how sometimes... People have several different shades of a similar character. Maybe this was like his sketch or something of Bonneville. Yeah, his thematic Bonneville. Right? Yeah. Like his thematic Bon Vie. Yeah. It's interesting. I like that. It, it, it's, uh, it does feel like an archetype for him. We obviously yeah. don't see a demon. And to be fair, maybe this is tinfoil thematic resonance theorizing, but like we don't see a demon, but that doesn't mean anything because in La Belle Sauvage, he is pretty shitty toward his demon, and I, yeah. I'm pretty sure they're severed. I mean, I think that's an obvious thing. Uh, there's almost this theme, too, of collecting demons or collecting people in this mm -hmm. story, yeah. which also feels prominent in the Secret Commonwealth, right? Like, in collecting demons, collecting souls, collecting spirits. I mean, even in the whole series. So yeah. I did like that as the collectors, as people coveting certain artwork. I felt like that was really prominent and a strong theme throughout that made sense. I mean, Mrs. Coulter herself is somewhat of a collector, but, you know, of children. Mm -hmm. Stealing children. Yeah. And their souls. Yeah. Oh. 
and their demons. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well. It's, what a novella. It is. is a novella. It is. I actually There's really a lot like in it. There. I, I do like this one. Same. For a 21-page novella, I like it a lot. Same. I thought it, there was a lot of fun stuff to, to dig into there to talk about, even if it's not canon. It, it's good even food it's for not. thought. It's kind of canon. I give it like a, a 5 out of 10 canon. That's all right. That's okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's strong. That's strong canon. All right. Well, thanks, thanks. so much for tuning in to our special Patreon episode 35 on the collectors a very swift novella so if you enjoyed listening in make sure you go reread it and check out some of these details we pointed out indeed or don't read it get it on audible listen to bill nye tell it to you i gotta listen to minutes. it i gotta listen to it i haven't listened to it um so i, I, I same as you i'm not great with audiobooks so We'll see. It might happen. I, I, You know what? Of all the audiobooks, I know A Song of Ice and Fire is spoken so highly of yeah. with Roy Detrice, but uh, I think there's a certain really proud confidence behind the audiobooks for his Dark Materials from the extended series to the main trilogy, and I do think I should check it out. Yeah. And our friend, our friend Holly has spoken highly of them, so. Yes. Alright. Well, thanks everyone. Yes, and keep tuning in. We'll be back with His Dark Materials episode 17, episode 2 for the Amber Spyglass next month in July. Yep. Thanks, I'll see you in other worlds. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.